we are going to end our series, the perfect series. Uh, hopefully this is the perfect ending to the perfect series. If you've not been here over the last several weeks, the perfect series it really stems from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We look at that word perfect um, as a state of being. We tend to think of perfection as a place you arrive at. But biblically, as we've looked at this, the perfection is more a journey than it is a destination. Um, we are made perfect in Christ Jesus. By putting faith in Christ, we are in a fully perfected state. Even as we journey toward that perfected state that Christ has purchased for us. And so we've looked at different aspects of that throughout the, the month. We've talked about the Bible being the perfect book. We talked about the perfect family. Uh, we talked about the perfect Christmas, the perfect church. And today I want to talk about the perfect timing. Perfect timing. Now, I don't know, when you hear the words perfect timing, I don't know what pops into your mind. Maybe you think about um, arriving on time. Uh, maybe you're in one of those relationships where uh, one of you is always late and one of you is always wanting to be early. And so there's this friction maybe in your relationship as husband and wife and you're like, well, you know, or, you know, maybe you live with your sister or maybe you live with uh, another relative and there's just friction and you're like, I want to be on time for everything and you're always late. Uh, or maybe you're just someone that's perpetually late for everything and your boss is trying to get you to agree with this idea that there is a perfect time to show up for work and that's on time. And so I don't know what thoughts come up in your mind as you think about the perfect timing. Maybe you're a jokester and so you're thinking about the perfect punchline and uh, I, I just think about how funny that is after all the comments that were made during setup today about jokes <laughs> and people not laughing at our jokes and maybe the, maybe the timing was off on some of those jokes. I don't know. And so the perfect punchline, or maybe, maybe it's a little worse than that. Maybe for you, it's like a missed opportunity. Maybe there was a perfect time in your life and you look back and you think, man, I said no to something I should have said yes to, I should have, or I said yes to something I should have said no to. Maybe I missed an opportunity or the timing was off and I'm not going to get that back. Or maybe you're just one of those people that you just long for a time that was in the past. Did you ever do that? Did you ever just wish you could go back? I mean, maybe this week when it was snowing um, and you were like, man, I wish I could be like a kid again and just enjoy the snow day. Maybe you had no problem enjoying the snow day and watching the snow fall and we're like, oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, but maybe you've grown up and you're just like, oh, snow, I got to move it and I got to shovel and ah, uh, or I can't go anywhere and I'm just housebound and I just hate it. Uh, and so you're just like, oh, I just, I wish I could go back and be a kid because we do that a lot we we long for what we've lost or we long for a time in the past because today you know it was always better in the past right and I don't know if it was ever better in the past but I feel like we always think it was I mean we always remember the past with like this fondness whether it's um, uh, maybe uh, our childhood or a church we grew up in or a job we had or even our culture. We kind of look around us today and we like, oh man, the, we, we want to go back to the good old days. And I, I don't know if the good old days existed. I mean, I, I've studied the Roman Empire um, and there was a whole lot of like sexual immorality that was rampant in the, the Roman Empire. There was like, they, they killed people for sport. 
I mean, they put them in the Colosseum and watched them got, like, torn apart by wild animals, and they cheered. I mean, uh, the Vikings yesterday, they cheered because they threw a ball around, but the Romans, I mean, they were some pretty despicable, disgusting, horrible people. And uh, sometimes I think when we look back at times in the past and we think, oh, man, our world today is so bad, I'm like, I, I, I think it's always been bad. I think maybe we're just more aware of the badness because in the Roman Empire you had to be in the Colosseum to see it. Now, because of our connectedness, because of constant news, uh, I get to see people blown up on the other side of the world and I get to see the, the, the carnage of that bombing and I, I get to be a part of it and even if I'm not present. And I get to hear all the stories about all of the, 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 the sick things that are happening around the world. And so maybe, maybe it's just not that it's worse. Maybe it's just more prevalent. Maybe we're just more aware because of, we get to see it all. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't long for a time that's in the past. But, or or this, one, this, one, this one's always good. We, we always like talk about the next generation. I mean, do you look at like... Do you ever look at teenagers today and just are like, oh my word, what is going to happen to our country? Did you ever do that? Like, did you ever, are you ever just like, oh man, we are in trouble when these snowflakes grow up, right? That's what we call them now, snowflakes. Do, but here's the thing. I actually went back through history and did you know that every generation said that about the younger generation? All of them. In fact, look, I even have a few quotes. Look at, look at this. Look, the world is passing through trouble, trouble, troublous times. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They're impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they knew everything. What passes for wisdom with us is foolishness to them. As for the girls, they are forward, immodest, unladylike in speech, behavior, and dress. I don't know who Peter the Hermit is, but he said that in 1274. That was a long time ago. But let's go back even further. How about the 8th, 8th century B.C.? Let's look at this. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent upon the frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was young, <laughs> have you ever said that? <laughs> when I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders. But the present youth are exceedingly wise and impatient Exceedingly unwise and impatient of restraint. Does it sound like kind of what we hear today? It, so as I was thinking about the Christmas season, and as I was thinking about us celebrating today and even this message, and uh, there, there's just something the Lord put in my heart that I, my prayer for Restoration Church in the, the year ahead really gets, um, it gets it's illustrated in two people in the Christmas story. And they're not people that we talk about often. They're found in Luke chapter 2. And so if you want to open your Bible to Luke chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to get there in a minute. And uh, if you want to pull it up on your device or if you just want to read it off the screen, uh, that's fine. But I want to look at, at two older people, Simeon and Anna. And rather than Simeon and Anna looking back at what what could have been or should have been, or even just getting caught up in maybe the cynicism of their day. I think these two stand out as faithfulness in a way that I hope we pick up on in the year ahead. In Galatians chapter 4, I want to start there. 
There's a, a passage of scripture that the Apostle Paul ha- writes in the middle of his letter to the Galatians. And I love this passage. I love this verse. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. But when the time was right. Some versions will say when the fullness of time came. Or when the time was completed. Different ways of saying it. But when the time was right, God sent his son. And a woman gave birth to him. His son obeyed the law so he could set us free from the law. And we could become God's children. Now that we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And his spirit tells us that God is our father. So what's this? Why was this the right time? Why was Jesus born when he was born? What, what made that the right time or the fullness of time? What was it about this time period? And scholars will debate this and they'll talk about it and they think it maybe it was uh, for the, in the Roman Empire for the first time in history uh, with the roadways and all of the systems that the Roman government put in place that the gospel was going to be able to spread and so this is why it was the right time. And some people think it was because uh, the Jews had come back, uh, the Israel, Israel Israelites, they weren't really Jews at the time, but they came back from captivity and there was this renewed hunger for the word and this passion for the kingdom of God to come. And so that's why it was the right time. But, you know, when you, when you look at it, the, the, the time that Jesus was born into is not very different from the time that we live today. There were different groups of people alive, just like there are different groups of people alive today. In fact, there were a group of people called the Sadducees. We read about them in the scripture, but I don't know if you know anything about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priests. So the priesthood at this time was corrupt. They were, they, all they cared about was money. Do you remember Jesus going in and flipping over the tables? There was a reason he did that, because corruption was rampant. They were really just lining their pockets. They were living in lavish houses. There was all kinds of immorality taking place. At times, we're even told that there weren't enough priests to do the duties of the temple because the priests were off watching some of the Roman uh, shows, if you will, some of them very immoral. The priesthood had become this, this despicable culture. And this was who's, who was in charge of the temple. There were these groups of people, we read about them in the scripture, known as the Herodians. The Herodians were a group of people, they were Israelites, but they they really loved the Roman culture. They're like, you know, I think we can worship God, but we can also like, you know, have running water and uh, the entertainment of the Roman Empire. I mean, what's wrong with giving uh, some of our allegiance to, to Rome? Because, I mean, look at all the benefits they provide. And so there's this group of people. And then there's these other groups of people. There's this group called the Essenes. And we don't really read about them in the scripture, but we're grateful today for the Essenes. The Essenes were these people that felt like all of culture had gone to hell in a handbasket. And they moved out into the desert and they started their own culture and they, they wrote down meticulously the scripture. They kept copying it day after day after day. That's all they did. They, were, they would write the scripture day after day after day. And they were hoping for the Messiah to come and set them free from the culture that had become so corrupt around them. They isolated themselves from everyone. We found, in in the 1960s and 70s, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that come from this community that lived out in the desert. And we have learned so much about the scripture and about the culture of that time because of these people. 
And so we are very, that's why I say we're very grateful for them, even though we don't read about them much in, in the Scripture. Then there were the groups called the Zealots. You remember the Zealots? The Zealots believed that the only good Roman was a dead Roman. And if you could kill a Roman soldier, you could do it in the name of the Lord. Mm. Victory! Triumphant! Kill the Romans! And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's really the way that Jesus or that God really wanted them to like have victory over the Romans. Then there was this group called the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? And of all of the different groups in the scripture, uh, I love the Pharisees. The Pharisees were super committed to the scripture. So much so that the Pharisees believed that they could make every home a temple and every table an altar and their hope was that they could live as such a pure community keeping the scriptures so meticulously that the messiah would come and they would be set free from the roman empire and they they would uh, they, that they would have victory over their enemies uh, they were so close i mean the pharisees were so close it looks like jesus is really hard on the pharisees um, but the only thing that the pharisees missed was compassion compassion they were very devout and you say well pastor tom what's all this mean well i I, i'm just i want you to know that when jesus came at at just the right time it was a time just like our time we can look back and think you know it would have been better if we lived in jesus's day when jesus walked the earth It, it it was the same it was the same I'm going to show it to you in the life of Simeon and Anna. Because when we, when we get in this mindset that we need to go back to something, instead of looking at where we are now and where we're going, that's where we get ourselves into trouble. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says this, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now. Now. Today is the day. This is the perfect time. This is the perfect timing. I know it doesn't always feel like it, but this is what we have to remind ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. It's not going to happen for us just because we, we hope it happens. It's, there are certain things that you and I have to do to, to, to see and understand that now is the time. And I think we're going to see it in the life of Simeon and Anna. And I want to go to Luke chapter 2. This is where we pick up the story in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. It says this, Now when the time came for their purification, talking about Jesus and Mary, okay, it's time for their purification according to the law of Moses. Okay, so back in Leviticus, we're told that firstborn or all male children that were born, after seven days they would, they would be circumcised as being a part of the covenant. We, we read that earlier in Luke chapter 2. We skipped that part today, but that happened. And then it says that after 40 days, if you had a baby and you were a lady in this time period, after 40 days, if it was your firstborn son, you would bring an offering to the temple as a purification ritual, if you will, because of, of the law of Moses. And that's what we're seeing here. So Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up to Jerusalem because they're living in Bethlehem. 
Okay, so they've been in Bethlehem for 40 days. They're bringing Jesus to the temple, which is just a, a short half day's walk from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male should be set apart to the Lord. That has to do with the, the Exodus. If you can go back into Leviticus, you could read about it. And uh, there's a whole lot of reason that they did this. But this is what I want to see. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is specified in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, why is that significant? Well, because according to the law, you were actually supposed to bring a lamb. But if you could not afford a lamb, in other words, if, you're, if you were in poverty, you could substitute the lamb with two birds. So what's that tell us about Mary and Joseph? They're dirt poor. Yeah, that's what it tells us. They couldn't afford a lamb for the sacrifice. They could have skipped the sacrifice altogether, but they didn't. And so we could sit here today and be like, well, I don't know if Jesus is really the Messiah. I mean, was he really, did he follow the law? He followed the law to the T. Look at what he does. Through his parents, they even bring him from the time he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was, according to the law, it was perfect. And Luke is writing this detailed account for us to know that Jesus is the Messiah. That he came as the total fulfillment of the law. Oh, and by the way, they were dirt poor. Well, that doesn't seem real significant, so let's keep reading. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. We don't know much about Simeon. Scholars like to debate and guess maybe who Simeon is. Most scholars feel like he was the son of Hillel. Hillel was one of the famous rabbis. There are two really famous rabbis in, in Jewish history, okay? And one was Hillel, one was Shammai. They think that he was the son of, of Hillel, but it's all speculation. We don't know. All Luke tells us is... Here was a guy named Simeon, and here's two words. He was righteous and devout. He was looking for the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now those two words, righteous and devout, I want to talk about them for a second. The word devout means he was a follower of Torah. It means he knew the law. He knew the scriptures. He knew the prophets. He understood that God had prophesied that there was a coming Messiah. There was a coming kingdom. So when he's talking about the restoration of Israel, he believes all that God has said about bringing a Messiah, about bringing a kingdom. And this guy, this old man, is looking for it. He's anticipating it. He's believing it. Can I tell you something? He's in the temple. And every day, he's surrounded by corruption. Every day, he's surrounded by what caused Jesus to flip tables. And even in the midst of it, he doesn't give in to cynicism. He doesn't give in to despair. He is devout. He's a follower of Torah. I'm not going to give up on the temple. The law tells me to come to the temple. I know that they're misusing my gifts, but I'm going to bring it anyway because I believe God is writing a story where he is putting everything back together again. I believe there's a restoration coming. And that's what I love about this guy, Simeon. He is devout. Don't miss that word. He's a follower of the law. He's anticipating a coming Messiah. And, oh, and by the way, the Holy Spirit is upon him. What? The Holy Spirit isn't even poured out yet. But this guy is somehow living in a way that he is, he's redeeming the time. 
in a time when the Holy Spirit shouldn't be upon people, the Holy Spirit's upon him. I don't know. It, it breaks all the rules. <laughs> but I love it. Then there's this word righteous. We misunderstand the word righteous because, yes, it has this, this connotation that um, you're in right standing with God or you're a good moral person or you're, you're trying to keep the law, but that's really what devout is. It's righteous has something else attached to it. It's compassion. It's compassion. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, this same word is used. Look at this. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and he did not want to disgrace her. He intended to divorce Mary privately. Now, here's the thing. The way we think about righteousness, if Joseph was really righteous, he would stone Mary because she's guilty of adultery. If he's going to keep the law, he needs to stone her. She was pledged to be married, which is the same thing as being married in that culture, and she has been found to be with child. So the word righteous doesn't mean keeper of the law. It means keeper of the law mixed with compassion. And Joseph had this compassion, so he didn't want to expose Mary to that, so he plans to divorce her quietly. Then we know that the angel comes and he doesn't divorce her and all this stuff. But remember when Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts of the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we read that and we're like, whoa, our righteousness has... But think about this. He doesn't say, unless your devotion. Because the Pharisees were devout. <laughs> when it came to keeping the law, they were meticulous. I mean, they tithed their spices, for crying out loud. These guys, they had it. But when Jesus says they lack one thing, go find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Remember he said that to them? The thing that the Pharisees lacked was righteousness, compassion. Yeah, be a keeper of the law, but help people carry it. Don't put it on them in a heavy-handed way. Does that make sense? So when, what the people are hearing is not that you have to keep the law better than the Pharisees. Your interpretation of the law has to be far more compassionate than the Pharisees. That's what Jesus is saying. So Simeon, he's righteous. He's devout. He's being led by the Spirit before the Spirit even is poured out. I like this guy. You like this guy? I would love to have a church full of Simeons. I would like to be a Simeon. Man, I mean, I try to be devout. I'm sure I don't do it. I try to be righteous. Ugh. But you know, cynicism and criticalness and judgmentalism just creep in. And usually, I get judgmental of the judgmental people. Yeah, I know. Doesn't that just seem so bizarre? But that's the trap that we all fall into. But here's Simeon. So verse, verse 27, look at this. So Simeon directed by the Spirit, came into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in child, the child Jesus to do for him what was customary according to the law, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God. <laughs> he picked the poor kid. I mean, if you're expecting the Messiah to come, is this really what you're expecting? There's no angel. There's no vision. There's no star. 
All Simeon has is this inner witness of the Spirit, and somehow he lets that guide him. He has lived his life in such a way, very devout, very righteous, that very led by the Spirit, that he can spot the Messiah. And here's the thing, there's never any confirmation that he got it right. There's no angels that show up in response. All we get is him declaring who this child is. How does he even know he got it right? I mean, maybe Mary and Joseph told them a little bit of the story, but do you, do you ever wonder, did Simeon be, was he just like, man, did I miss that? Did I just prophesy over a kid that he was going to be the Messiah? And I, I, I don't know, did I eat some bad falafel last night? I don't know, I don't know what's going on. But all I know is that that's not the kid I would have picked. I wouldn't have picked the one that, that came from that poor family and brought him into the temple. I was looking for someone else. I want us to be like that. I want to be a people that are led by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, Brothers, I do not want you to go on being ignorant about the things of the Spirit. That's interesting to me because the Corinthian church felt like they were very, very wise in the ways of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit were operating. There were all kinds of things happening. Miracles were happening. Uh, prophecies were happening. Speaking in tongues was happening. Every church service was great. And so, but Paul is like, you guys, you're, you're very ignorant. I want you to learn about it. And he doesn't say this in a way to try to shame them and be like, he's just like, I want you to put this in perspective. I want you to grow in it. Here's the thing. We all attend a Pentecostal church. But I don't want us to go on being ignorant about the way the Holy Spirit works. I don't want us to just be people that believe that the baptism in the Holy Spirit can happen, that, the, that speaking in tongues has some benefit for some people sometimes, that God maybe wants to every once in a while perform a miracle, that, you know, but I, I want us to live like Simeon, where every day is pregnant with possibility that someone could walk into our life and the Holy Spirit could speak and prompt us and we could walk over to them and we could bless God and we could bless them. If, if, we, go back, if we go on, in in the, the rest of Luke chapter 2, Simeon not only takes the child in his arms and blesses God, but Simeon also blesses the parents. Mary and Joseph blesses them. I believe spirit-filled people will do those two things. They'll bless God and they'll bless others. They'll look at the next generation and rather than call them snowflakes, they'll see the positive in that generation and how God is going to use that to bring the restoration that he's promised. Because here's the thing, God has promised restoration. We celebrate Advent not because Jesus came once, but because he's coming again. And God has perfectly, I believe, perfectly designed this generation to be the generation that begins to usher in that promise. And you and I can either lean on our own understanding and we can say what we see and we can accuse and we can judge or we can be led by the Spirit to speak what the Apostle Paul in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says each person is given a particular manifestation of the Spirit that will be for the common good. Every time we get together, the Holy Spirit should be speaking through each of us to each other. One, somebody should have to get up here and say, okay, settle down, people. Now we've got to move on. That's what ought to be happening. And I don't say this to try to shame us and be like, oh, come on, people. I say this to say, the, the, there's, we're so far below what God has intended for the body of Christ. 
And I hope that something stirs in our heart today that says we could end up being like Simeon. I'm not saying that every day the Messiah is going to walk in or every day we're going to hit a home run because every day we might give someone a word and walk away wondering, did I get that right? But can I tell you something? We may not know, but God used Simeon and he used Anna to, to bring Luke to be able to show you and I today that Jesus is the Messiah. A guy that was just devout and righteous and filled with the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to lead him and going to the temple and looking and seeing a child. There was nothing in that child that would have made it look like he was the Messiah. Everything was the inner witness of the Spirit. I want to look at Anna. I want to look at Anna. And we're going to run out of time. Verse 36 of Luke chapter 2. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. The word Asher means happy. Okay, so she's from the tribe of happy. <laughs> Her life is anything but happy. Look at this. She was very old. Okay, you can be old and happy. That's not what I meant. <laughs> having been married to her husband for seven years until his death. That's tragedy. I mean, there's no record of her having any children. So after seven years, she lost it all. She lived as a widow since then for 84 years. So we're not sure in the Greek translation if this means she's 84 years old or if it's been 84 years since her husband died. We don't know. It's a little bit unclear. But she chose, look at what it says, she never left the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. See, as a widow, she has no way to take care of herself. She has no children. She has no support system. Okay, there's no government check that's going to be coming to her. There's no welfare system. She would be forced to just live off of whatever she could make to provide for herself. And rather than just get remarried, which would have been the smart thing to do in that time period, was to to remarry, there were even laws that some of the other brothers would maybe have to marry her. Maybe he didn't have brothers. I don't know. But for whatever reason, she didn't choose to make life easy. She chose to live in the temple day and night. Day and night, worshiping and fasting. And at the moment that Simeon begins to prophesy about this child, at that moment, she came up to them and began to give thanks to God and speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, because like Simeon, Simeon is spirit-led, but Anna's just going through the motions. She's just showing up at the prayer meeting. Week after week after week after week. Maybe 60 years, maybe 80 years She's in the temple, she's fasting, she's praying. What, what confirmation does she have that her life is actually meaning anything? She's looking like Simeon. She's trusting that the Messiah's coming. She's trusting for the restoration. She's trusting. She sees the temple too. She sees the corruption. She sees the culture. She sees everything that's going on around her. And yet every day, there she is in the temple, fasting and praying, worshiping God. And she recognizes that Simeon, when he speaks about this child, somehow something lights up on the inside of her, and she recognizes it too. I think 60 to 80 years of fasting and prayer might just do that to you. See, I think the church today, the reason it's so easy for us to just get critical of the world and to latch on to all the negativity that's happening in our culture is because we're a prayerless church. 
Yeah, we're a prayerless church. Trust me, I've been in ministry 25 years. And for 25 years, we've had prayer services. And the thing you can't get people to attend is a prayer service. You can't. They're not flashy. I mean, sometimes you leave and you wonder, why do, why, why do we even have this? I mean, sometimes it's, just, sometimes it's just me and Marv. Love you, Marv. But I'll tell you, when it's me and Marv, we move heaven and earth. And sometimes I sit there, and even while we're praying, I'm like, this is so pointless. Why are we doing this? And you think, well, pastor, you're the pastor. You have to attend the prayer meeting. No, I don't. I don't even have to have one. But here's the thing. I think we need it. I think the church needs it. And here's the thing. Uh, this would be a great message to preach on a night or a day when there was a prayer service that night. But we're not even going to meet again until January 8th. And I'm not saying, oh, if you don't attend the prayer service, you're not. That's not what I'm saying. Because sometimes you get accused of that. You're like, oh, only the cool people go to the prayer service, or you're not really spiritual if you don't go to the prayer service. No, that's not what I'm saying either. But there's something about people who pray that recognize that there's a coming kingdom. And maybe... Maybe this generation does have a lot of flaws. But what I see in them is something that the Father sees in them. And I want to speak that over them. And I want to believe that restoration is coming. And I want to believe that God is going to do something in my day that I, I didn't even expect or I didn't even imagine. See, rather than, than Anna just giving up or walking away, Anna just shows up every day. Did she miss a day? Maybe. But don't take, don't take my words for it about how important prayer is. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus, in the garden with his disciples, this is what he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Luke chapter 21, verse 36, same scenario, but in Luke's words. Be always on the watch. And pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, the Apostle Paul, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Not devote yourself to Christmas parties. Devote yourself to uh, potlucks. Devote yourself to Bible studies. Devote yourself to, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Say, Pastor Tom, you better really end this on a positive note because we're all feeling beaten down now because we're not praying. Oh, good. I'm glad that you said that because here's the thing. A king is coming. This is what Advent is all about. Jesus came. And here's the thing. God is in the process of putting the world back together. Oh, I know. You could watch CNN. You could watch Fox News. You could watch, you could read your Facebook feed and you could talk about all, all hell is breaking loose on the earth today. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Read this with me. For a child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. He shoulders responsibility and is called Wonderful Advisor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast and he will bring an immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness. From this 
time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of heaven's armies will accomplish this. Here's the thing. Today, you can get sucked into the despair and the hopelessness and the criticalness and all of the junk that's going on in your life and in your family, or you can remind yourself today that there is a king that is coming. And right now, he is in the process of putting this world back together again. And you can choose to either be part of the cynicism or you can be a Simeon and an Anna and you can continue to be watchful and thankful and speak life and speak hope and speak peace, not to everyone, but to those who will listen. Did you catch that? Anna went around telling the people that would listen. It doesn't say Anna got bent out of shape at the people who wouldn't listen to her. <laughs> she just moved on. Whoever would listen, she would talk to them, and she would get excited about it. She doesn't have to worry. Oh, I'm preaching to myself here today, because this is what we do. We get sucked in. Why won't those people listen? I don't know why those people won't listen, but I'm going to focus on the people that will listen. And I'm going to tell them that the king is coming. Look in Romans chapter 4. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. CNN will tell you there's no reason for hope today. I mean, this new election, it's hopeless. Did you see all the candidates that we have to choose from? Like, what hope do we have? <laughs> We have a hope that there's a king that is putting the world back together again. And he doesn't even have to wait two more years for an election cycle. He can start today if you'll see it. The problem is it's hard to see if we're not devout, if we're not a people who study the word, if we're not righteous, if we're not a people of compassion who are merciful, if we're not like Anna, people who will give themselves to fasting and prayer, we don't get, when we're not those people, we don't see what he sees. Because his ways are higher than our ways. We tend to see only what we can see. I promise you, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You're like, Pastor Tom, we know all these verses, but do we know them? Do we remember them when we're at work and it seems like everything is falling apart? Do we remember them when we're not getting the report that we want to hear? Do we remember them? And like Simeon and Anna, do we just stay in the Word? Do we just keep giving people compassion? Do we just keep being merciful as He is merciful? Do we keep giving ourselves to fasting and prayer so that we see the world not as it is, we see the world as He sees it? And we call that forth. That's the whole point of the gifts of the Spirit. That's the whole point of prophecy. To start calling out the good that we see in one another. We, we love to point out the flaws in other people. And I know there's a time for it. Yep, the Bible says that if you see your brother caught in sin, but for crying out loud, can we just start seeing our brothers and sisters with something good to call out of them? Parents, if all we do is point out the flaws in our kids, that's what the Bible says about exasperating them. Start calling out the good. But you won't see it if you don't choose the righteous, devout, fasting and prayer path. You won't see it. This is the path 
of Simeon Anna. This is the path that I think God is calling Restoration Church to in this new year. One last scripture verse. I know I went way over today. Excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. This is one of the key verses for our church. Because we believe right now in Huron, South Dakota, God is up to something. I believe in every one of your lives, God is up to something. I do. I believe He is in the process of putting things together. And you may go to 60 or 80 years worth of prayer meetings and never once see anything. But I promise you, God is writing a story. And God can use your faithfulness to be something for someone else years later. Today, you and I believe in Jesus because of the faithfulness of Simeon and Anna. Because Luke could write a detailed account about the birth of the Messiah and show us that he fulfilled the law even from the time he was born. Because of two people who were righteous and devout and gave themselves to fasting and prayer. That's my hope for Restoration Church in the year 2023 and beyond that we will be a church committed to the scripture, that we will be a church full of compassion, that we will be a church moved by the Spirit, that we will be a church given to fasting and prayer. And I think if we can catch that vision for our church in 2023, heaven and earth might just move. They might just move. And so, Father, thank you today for the assurances that we have in your word that today you are at work. You are always at work. There's never a time when you have stopped working. Holy Spirit, I pray today for each person that is a part of Restoration Church. God, I pray that today you would stir our hearts to be people of the word people that are devout, that are given not just to knowing the word, but doing what it says, putting it into practice in our lives. God, that we are people of righteousness, people full of compassion. God, that we never tire of being merciful to others. God, you have shown so much mercy to us. You have never once treated us as our sins deserve. May we never tire of giving compassion to others. May we be a church moved by the Spirit. God, may we no longer be ignorant about how your Spirit works. May we no longer use our personalities or our upbringing or any other excuse for not understanding how your Spirit speaks and stepping out in faith and beginning to speak to coworkers and friends and neighbors and people in our worship services. God, that we would be people of the Spirit. That we would be a people given to fasting and prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would take the words that I've shared with this congregation and that you would use them to ignite hope, passion, possibility in each and every one of our hearts. Holy Spirit, for any way that my words have come across as condemning or full of shame or guilt, 
I pray that you'd break it off. And God, that you would use your word today to bring hope and life in this year ahead. Holy Spirit, make us Simeon and Anna type of people in this year ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. Uh, Thank you for your patience. You guys were so patient. And you looked like you were paying attention and you were with me the whole time, even when I went over. And my phone was blowing up, so somebody was texting me, but I don't know who you are. But thank you for reminding me that we were already past time. No, I'm just kidding. I hope that the words I shared with you are something that will marinate in your spirit over the next several weeks as you reflect on the Christmas story. Read chapter two. Let the Holy Spirit take the story of Simeon and Anna and just put in your heart a hope for what God is doing in our world today because I believe he's doing something. Don't forget tonight, our Christmas party at six o'clock. I hope all of you are able to make it. Stop by the table before you leave today. And if you need any of the information about tonight's party or the end of the year giving, uh, if you didn't receive those emails, please see me after service. I'd love to share it with you. God bless you as you go today.